make do. Um, I hope you had an enjoyable amount of free time, and I hope you used it to read. All right. Did you read the Brothers Karamazov? Yes. Okay. Um, what do you think? at least a little bit easier to read than the <laughs> stuff we've read in the past. Okay. I mean, it's big, but you can make sense of it, particularly if you have a good English translation. Most of them are reasonably good. Fair enough. Um, what else? Yeah. I couldn't handle the, the devil trying to convince Ivan to not believe in God, but to believe in the devil. <laughs> there are a lot of people that do, strangely enough. Mm -hmm. You haven't noticed how people get all excited about where evil comes from, like that's a big problem in their mind, but nobody wonders, well, where does good come from? <laughs> All right, nobody has nearly as, nearly as much energy to spend on that problem. Mm. Right, it's the problem of evil, fascinating, the problem of good. Uh, you know. Also, the devil turning out to be a Cartesian. Well, of course he does. Well, <laughs> <you're not laughs> <saying. laughs> I thought we had covered that under Descartes. <laughs> I understand your interpretation of Descartes now. <laughs> All right, there we go. It's me, 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 all the way down. Uh, yeah. Uh, the devil, look, in any book we're going to read, if the devil shows up, he's going to be the most interesting character. I don't know why. That <laughs> but there is no exception to that rule. If we have a book with the devil in it, the devil's going to get all the best lines. All right? I mean, that's the reason why the Inferno is so much more interesting than the Paradiso. Which is this washed out kind of just too much light. You know, I get the idea, you're light, God, and it's really light and all, but it, it interferes with our distinction <laughs> between any of the things that are in the light, whereas things are all too distinct in hell. He has clear and distinct ideas there. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of his problem. Very few people understand Cartesian jokes. <laughs> I mean, you've actually gotten to the point where that begins to make sense. Good. Oh, dear. All right. Um, it's supposed to have done something to you, this thousand pages. Uh, what did it do to you? I mean, what do you think? What's your reaction? I mean, some people look at this and say, that's a sick mind. I mean, there's just no way that anybody should be able or want to write a book like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, like, you know, stepping away from the, the spiritual and the, the larger themes of the book, even just the, the family drama uh, of the novel itself was what struck me. Like, it's just like, how messed up is this family? And so it was, it was just, it, it, it's great. It, it feels almost like a reality TV drama, mm -hmm. but like, you know, you know, with deadly consequences. That's and, actually very well taken. And it, I really enjoyed it, even just at that very human level, just the relationships and the, the suffering and the... The, the, path, the pathos of each character. The complexity of family life is actually, I mean, this is personally more complex than we wish, but he gives us a sense of how powerful the emotions surrounding family ties can actually be. I mean, here they've gone bad really quick and really bad, but uh, family life is messy and complicated, as everybody knows, because we all have families, right? One of the things that he's figured out, I mean, the great, I think, Dostoevsky is a greater psychologist than Freud could ever hope to be. It's <laughs> true. And uh, in looking at this, um, the insights that he had are quite, stark, are quite striking. Um, people are not 
rational pleasure maximizers in the empirical world. In the empirical world, people do all kinds of stuff. Some of it pursues pleasure, but other examples of it involve slamming a door on your thumb. <laughs> now that, that, that passage there, that was where I had to put the book down. Like, I don't want to know any more about this. The problem is that people really are like that. So she, she went from self-hatred to wanting to oppress the poor, to <coughs> wanting wealth, to wanting to kill everyone, to wanting to hurt herself. And the worst part is, is that I understood every step. And it made sense. He shines a light on those darkest corners of the human psyche. I'm not sure that I want this information, but once you start reading the book, you're sort of committed. And, and Catherine, who loved so much and yet it was all out of fear, and it was all self-loathing that pushed her to do it. She seems, other than Alyosha, like the most Christian character, mm -hmm. but in fact, she's the betrayer. Yeah. Um, the spiritual and psychological complexity of this novel is really amazing. I don't think there's anything in the Western tradition, any, in any tradition that will touch it. In other words, I think this is as much as you can hope for out of the novel. It's an astonishing tour de force. And he's got an opinion on everything. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care for modern psychology, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> the, the psychologists that came in to testify as to what was really going on here could not have been any more wrong than they were. Yeah. Going, it wow, sounds it, so good. Uh, it does sound so good. It's just that there's not a great interpreter. <laughs> that, that's the problem. Yeah. All right, yeah. Could we interpret the, the peasants? Uh, sentencing Dmitri as a reaction against the defense attorney saying even if he had killed his father, it was legitimate. That the judgment is sort of that modern psychology, which legitimates evil, needs to be condemned. Well, um, the common sense, the good common sense of the peasants, is something that Dostoevsky has in common with Tolstoy. All right, because they're ignorant and illiterate and uh, deeply Christian, but don't have any of the complexities that bedevil us, they give us pretty accurate judgments of right and wrong. And the deal is that if we have reason to believe that you killed your father, um, no amount of psychobabble is gonna get you off the hook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not putting up with that. There's much to be said for that, because what we get is genuinely psychobabble is not a, a grain of truth in any of it towards the end. Okay. Um, tell me about Big Daddy. <laughs> What's the older Karamazov like? Yeah. I mean, uh, pardon the pardon my friend. He's a great A asshole. He's the guy who <laughs> um, you know tries to does his best to abandon his kids. You know, he's unsuccessful even in that. Yeah. The only thing he's good at is making you know he's a landlord, a rent seeker. He, makes a modest amount of money and eventually becomes quite wealthy, but he's an almost entirely selfish character mm -hmm. um, who is concerned almost entirely with his own uh, like, pleasure-seeking and granted. So he's probably the most like pleasure-seeking pleasure um, creature in the whole novel because okay. he's just you know, going after you know, whoring and the, you know, drinking and just that's what he's, he, he spends his life in. Even worse, he, he wants to make everyone around him miserable mm -hmm. actively. Yeah. Yeah, he's not even just passively rejecting his own children. All right, he actively wants to do stuff that's bad for them, like, for example, spending their inheritance on liquor, All right. or becoming a rival for Grushenka with Dmitri. That's all. 
Yeah, is that? Do you think that's out of actual love for her, or the fact that he just wants to ruin it with the? He doesn't love anybody. Yeah. Um, in Russian, anybody know what Grushenka means? Lift it up. It's the diminutive form of the word for pair. Like in stealing pairs, you've seen. Oh. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yes, it uh, is. What's the word for pear? Grushenka? Yeah. That's her name. It's, no, but yeah. It's little pear. It's a diminutive form of pear. So, Big Daddy and Dimitri are fighting over who gets the pear. <laughs> but then Dimitri has a conversion moment. It, it will happen occasionally, with and without the pears. All right. <laughs> The, the words matter. I mean, it's yeah. a totally like a dream. Hmm. There we go. And it's, we're not even clear that totally like it wasn't a dream, so you know, it could work that way too. Dimitri's name is taken from Demeter. It's the masculinization of Demeter. She's the god of the earth, or goddess of the earth. Why? Because he's a real bronze guy. He's Mr. Bronze. He's a party animal. Likes liquor, women. In other words, he's got the same weaknesses as his father. Except that he's not a monster. He's actually reclaimable. He, he, like all the brothers, will have some kind of spiritual transformation as we get towards the end. But it's an open-ended transformation. We don't know how it's going to go. Freud thought that this was the greatest novel ever written. I think he's probably right. Nietzsche, from whom it's hard to get any kind of compliment, said, Dostoevsky is the only person that has anything to teach me about psychology. That's actually pretty amazing, given that we're talking about Nietzsche here. I mean, people that disagree with him vehemently can't help but admit the power of his insights and the way the prose moves you. So, Dimitri needs money. He's just come of age, and he wants to get his inheritance from his dad. His dad laughs at him, says there was no inheritance. There is no inheritance. So we have the makings of a fascinating family drama. <laughs> and it's so true to life, and it's so realistic in so many ways. I mean, there are some exaggerations of the real, but still it has a very powerful realism to it. Um, it manages to bring in something that's alien to, to realism, which is a kind of overpowering spirituality. But in terms of the way this gets written, it sort of looks like Flaubert, if you know what 19th century French realism was, right, about the same time, all right? So we're, we're merging two things here. One, a very realistic depiction of the world. I mean, no, there, in other words, there are no unicorns here that, God doesn't come down and, you know, save anybody. On the other hand, the spiritual dimension of it outweighs all the other dimensions. So it's a very strange kind of combination. Dimitri is Mr. Braun. 
Jesus. And he's a party animal. He's about to engage in an edible conflict with his father. This is why Freud liked it so much. He said, this is the universal family drama. Every young man desires, whether he acknowledges it or not, to kill his father and have sex with his mother. That's why we still read Oedipus, because this is a permanent structure in the development of masculinity in our species. Now, this may be entire mumbo-jumbo. I am far from convinced that everyone is edible. On the other hand, that some people are, that seems pretty unquestionable. And that some people are not aware of such feelings? Yeah, I think that's probably true, too. Right, so there, there's something to be get, gotten there. Now, the big theme is announced early on in the novel. Father, why should I love you? And well, that's given, not just uh, the elder king. Yeah, that's right. That's a funny usually. <laughs> Yes, indeed. I was coming to that. <laughs> That's that. Father, why should I love you? Who's going to present this? Who's going to, oh, good. tell us why we should love Father. Okay, well, I'll get to that at the end. Right. That's the very end in the trial scene. You hear the defense lawyer going to a whole speech about that, which is one of my points in here. Mm -hmm. But good. So, I mean, clearly there's so much in this book. I'm just going to go over it. Yep few of the themes that I thought were pretty prominent. Um, I always got my trusty note card. Whenever I find something good, I write it down. So I'm going to go over those. Good for you. But uh, so in the very beginning, um, I think politics is a is a side topic in this book. But mm -hmm. you hear it come up a good bit, especially with um, socialism in the beginning. They're talking about, I think they're in um, the Elder's Monastery. And Yvonne, the intellectual, is always bringing up stuff um, like that on this level. I think you guys particularly are going to like this quote because we're actually talking about this with Coleman right now, but um, this is such a great quote. He says, or like in, in the very beginning of the book, um, in, in speaking about Yasha's uh, realization about the existence of God and, and immortality of the soul, he says, um, Dostoyevsky says, by precisely the same lights, had he decided that God and immortality did not exist, he would have immediately become an atheist and a socialist. For socialism is not only a problem of labor or the so-called fourth estate, but is in the first instance a problem of atheism. On the contemporary embodiment of the atheism, the problem of the Tower of Babel constructed expressly without God, not for the attainment of heaven from earth, but for the abasement of heaven to earth. So, Which chapter is that? It's, uh, let me see. The elders, right in the beginning of the elders. And we're talking exactly about this, how if he's, the best part about it, he says socialism is the atheistic question. It's this desire to build a heaven on earth, because without God, earth. Excellent. Earth. That's actually a brilliant <clears throat> point. Here's the deal. The people that are pursuing utopian politics are in fact pursuing heaven. The only difference between people pursuing heaven and people pursuing utopia is the vocabulary of their theology. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, so utopian left-wing movements are all disguised Christianity. Mm -hmm. Just falling short. Yep. So, so like Keep the going. Tower of Babel, so exactly that's what they try to do. That's what we're talking about right now in Coleman's class. 
is their desire to build, socialism is a desire to build this tower, this tower that will surpass the flood, will outlast the flood, and they think that they can build that here, but clearly socialism in and of itself is an evil and is never, I mean, doesn't really work. And so he, he highlights that point a lot, and obviously Christian, Christianity would go against that. So um, another point, this was I thought was really cool. So I looked a little bit into his background before I started reading, Mm-hmm. And his, his, one of his earlier books, The Idiot, um, it describes the books essentially about how he had a near-death experience. Um, he was called before a firing squad because he was hanging around some controversial thinkers of his time, and they were sentenced to death. And right before he was about to be shot, um, the, the guards came out and gave an order for them to be, not be killed and sent to a prison far away. And in Dostoevsky's book, The Idiot, he talks about, um, I didn't get to read the full thing, but I, I did a little overview of it, how um, right before that moment of death, he like looked up and saw the beauty of life, saw the flowers, the trees, the, the sun shining on a cathedral, and he just was like, wow, and he just had a moment of like, if everyone lived their life like this all the time, it would be beautiful, and they would be seen as an idiot, hence the title of his book, The Idiot, and he goes through that whole book talking about like how everyone sees this man as an idiot because he sees life as so beautiful so throughout Brothers Karamazov which was written after I, I kept a theme kept appearing in my mind and I kept seeing instances where he intentionally puts in people realizing the beauty of life at certain points mm-hmm. and especially with Dimitri um, there's one point early on page 118 um, he's, here's a quote <coughs> um, he's, he says uh let us render praise unto nature. Look at all the sun, the heavens so cloudless, the leaves all green. It's still high summer, four in the afternoon, and what silence. Where are you off to? And then there's just a whole paragraph of him just realizing the beauty of, of life. And then contrast that towards the end of the book. Um, you, see, you see him in, in the, in the, pris- or in the um, courtroom, and he realizes like he, he could be close to death, and he realizes the beauty of life, and he's willing to repent and... Um, and he sees the trial and every all this, this stuff. He's like, wow, I'm a terrible man. I need to, like, change. And I feel like that was similar to Dostoevsky at the firing squad. He's like, wow, life's beautiful. And then after he changed and started writing novels and everything. so That's that, a really good point. Um, Dostoevsky, you need to know a little about him. He's got organic brain problems. <clears throat> um, he is believed to have had what's called Geschwind's syndrome. This you will find interesting particularly those of you who are um, interested in questions of philosophy of psychology. People that have Geschwind syndrome are epileptics. They're a subset of epileptics. They can't help but write all the time. For some reason, they have what's graphololia or something. In other words, they compulsively write. Now, here's the kicker. For reasons that are not clear, people that have Geschwind syndrome, this particular kind of epilepsy, not only do they write all the time, but for reasons that are not clear to doctors of neurology, they become hyper-religious. In other words, they don't write things about gardening or uh, astronomy. They write books about religion. (laughs) Yeah, that's what seems clear about this to me. Um, you know, they could be writing about football or not. In other words, people that have this particular syndrome, they write, and they're 
you know, 90% of their, of their consciousness used to be devoted to religion. Mm. That's a trip. I mean, you know, roll that around in your mind for a while. Uh, so, yeah, have a look at the Schwinn syndrome. Uh, it's believed that Dostoevsky had this, and there are other people that have it and have the same habits of mind. Dostoevsky is a seriously sick pup. He was a compulsive gambler that lost all his money regularly, despite the fact that he was married. So he wrote his first book called The Gambler, was written to pay off gambling debts. <laughs> right? It's about obsessive compulsive. Look, there, look, there are people who go to the Indian casino who know perfectly well that they're going to lose. They don't build large casinos by losing. Right? So when you go there, you know that you're going there to lose your money. Everybody that does it knows that. And they keep coming back. Some of them lose the rent. Some of them lose dinner. Those kind of compulsions are the kind of thing that Dostoevsky focuses on. He specializes on. And these are the irrational drives that we have that we cannot control and hardly understand. <clears throat> so his first novel was The Gambler. And that was about somebody that has what we would nowadays call a gambling addiction. But back then, we had medicalized it. It was a spiritual problem back then. To tell you the truth, it's a spiritual problem right now, too. Mm -hmm. These are people that like the idea of self-destruction. They're just doing it in slow motion. Mm -hmm. All right. If you know the odds are against you, every time you spin the wheel, you're looking for that double zero. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. Now, Dostoevsky was seriously bent by this ex near execution. Turns out the czar has a real great sense of humor. Um, the other people involved, he was actually when a student involved in a plot to get rid of the czar and create a socialist westernized government. The czar's secret police found out, they shot the main conspirators. Socialist? Socialist, yeah. Of course. And then he, then he writes so adamantly against socialism. That's right, later exactly. Wow. Socialism is one of those western ideas, right, which he thinks are mostly corrupt or completely corrupt. Um, the czar doesn't want to kill everybody involved, but doesn't tell them because he wants to teach them a lesson. So he actually puts them out in front of a wall with a firing squad in front of it, and they're actually aiming at these guys. And I'm told that there's nothing like looking down the barrel of a gun to focus your attention. And that the opening, which is actually rather small, appears to be very, very large because your mortality is coming out of it. And... Uh, at that point, the, it had been arranged that some messenger would ride in on horseback, <coughs> tell him to stop, just as they're about to shoot Dostoevsky. Now, this completely wigs the guy out. I mean, he's just never the same after this. <coughs> and that's understandable, actually. Here we got a, a guy with organic brain problems who's an, excessive, an, an obsessive compulsive gambler who's just encountered his own morality, and instead of being killed, gets sent to Siberia for a few years so he can think about it, <laughs> which he does. There's not a lot of libraries where he's going. I mean, all he has to do is think about his soul and how the fact that he nearly died and all that kind of jazz. This is when he moves from being a westernizer to being a Slavophile. <clears throat> Yeah, is there more? Yeah, I have, okay, yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, well, I, that when you're you're saying that, I was thinking he must have some type of neurosis to write eight hundred something pages, and he probably feels like he couldn't finish exactly what he wanted to, and he just kept going. It also may remind me of Do, uh, Don Quixote, whereas I think this the pages are definitely more necessary. But, but uh, Don Quixote desperately needs an editor. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's like Moby Dick. If it were half as long, it'd be twice as good. Yeah, but there's a whole bunch of stuff you can get rid of there. Here, I think not so much. I mean, we have lots of plots and subplots, you know, with the, the children and the boys and Captain Sniff Regan, or whatever his name is, at the end with the, the child that dies. Um, something you should think about the year before he wrote this, Dostoevsky's three-year-old son died. Mm-hmm. The boy's name was Alyosha. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. Mm-hmm. He died at the age of three, as a result of epilepsy, which he inherited from his father. Is it, I'm guessing that has to do with the story of Oyasha as well. That's right. Wow. That's who it is. He's Captain Sniffer. Wow. wow. Okay. So he's writing this in the deepest kind of grief. <clears throat> and he's asking himself, in both of your senses, Father, why should I love you? He's doing that on behalf of his son, who's now dead, Alyosha. Dad, you gave me this lethal epilepsy and all. Why should I love you? And Dostoevsky is not actually all that sure of what a good answer would be. And this is a question that gets asked by everybody. One of the things that's most shattering about this book is the the question that the Freudian question that he asks. Who has not wished for the death of his father? For it says, look, no one will, will own up to that. <coughs> but everybody has. The prior generation is an impediment. And your feelings are, of course, properly constrained by civilization, so you don't kill your father. <coughs> but that impulse, that psychic dynamism, yeah, that's there. So, who has not wished for the death of his father? Well, it turns out, not these sons. Right. Dimitri has wished the death of his father because of his bronze proclivities. Daddy's got Grushenka and he wants her. Ivan has wished the death of his father because Ivan is loveless. And Irish, and, and uh, Ivan doesn't care whether the old man lives or dies. Matter of indifference to him. And even Alyosha, in his weaker moments, seeing the horror that his father is, when he's tempted by atheism, he's also tempted to find a way of living with the death of his father. His mortality is not a problem at least in his weaker moments, not all the time. You perhaps have noticed that these three boys are the three parts of Plato's soul. They're all fragmentary people looking for integration. It's a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. We've got these three people that are missing something, Mm -hmm. and they're on a journey to get it. 
Dimitri wants to get some control over his appetites, which he does when he has his conversion. Ivan wants to learn how to love, which is something he thought he could dispense with because of his Greek rationality. Towards the end, it looks like he's going to marry Katerina Ivanova. And Alyosha, he tells the boys that were friends of the dead Elusha, always remain faithful to God, to religion, and to each other. Mm -hmm. They throw up their caps and say, huzzah for Dostoevsky, for uh, Karamazov. Yeah. Speak like in a platonic sense, there's one point where I noticed, um, where is it? Uh, towards, let me see, four, around 460, the point where he's running back to Putra Illich after he um, goes to uh, Fyodor Pavlovich's house and uh, after he beats um, Grigori and he's all bloody and everything and he goes to Fyodor Pavlovich and he says, give me my pistol back and he asks him for it back and in that moment I was thinking, the, in the Republic of Cephalus's definition of justice, of giving back to people what they're owed. Very good. Um, and mm -hmm. and should you give back the gun? Should you give back the gun? That's yes, that would be justice to Cephalus, but to Dato or to Plato, no, you shouldn't be giving him the pistol back when he's Excellent bloody. Reading. Excellent. Reading. In a in a in that sense, so I was like, oh, I thought that was pretty cool. I do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, what I like best about this is that you're able to do excellent readings. I really like that. I mean, so I think you're right on the money there. Yeah. There's one more from mm -hmm. uh, Fear and Trembling as well, because I, cause I did this presentation. There was one line that um, stuck out. He says, um, Ivan, Ivan was speaking, he says, there you have it. But Ivan shouted, you ought to realize, novice, that the preposterous things are all too necessary upon earth. The world rests upon preposterous things, and it is indeed it's possible that without them absolutely nothing would it ever come into existence. We know that which we know in the sense of um, on the strength of the absurd that um, sometimes like you just the religious isn't always something that makes sense but it's it's the right thing to do, it's the answer and um, and Iv I mean Yvonne realizing that. I, I don't know if he would have read Oh he wouldn't have read it. I mean okay. nobody was reading it for a while. Okay. But uh, Although he wouldn't have read it, the ideas are actually very yeah. similar to right. Okay. I mean, they're, ra they're both radical Christians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So yeah, your point is very well taken there. Mm -hmm. um, rationality is not enough. I mean, that's been the Christian answer since the time of Augustine. There's much to be said for that. But to be fair to both sides, when you're trying to be more than reasonable, the danger is that you end up less than reasonable. And since most people that claim to be more than reasonable are disagreeing with one another, the sure thing is that they can't all be right. As a matter of fact, um, there's a whole collection of them that can't possibly be right. So there's real danger here. When you go beyond reason, okay, how do you know you're not going beneath it? What allows you to be certain of that? Very tricky. Very tricky. What can you tell me 
mean, since we're dealing with the three parts of the soul and the boys and how they're, you know, uh, Alyosha's on top because the spirit it has been turned into the spiritual, and he's the acme of what we might of what we might aspire to be. Right? He, he's the Christ figure. There's no Dostoevsky novel that doesn't have a Christ figure. In the idiot, it's the idiot himself. Mm-hmm. All right? um, but Alyosha is our Christ figure, and everybody likes him, but nobody knows why. All right, he's just he's nice to everybody, and everybody likes him. He always tells the truth. He always does tell the truth, and people don't get offended by it. I mean, there's something extraordinary about it. He's got this sort of glow, right, that doesn't interfere with the realism of the novel. All right? But there's somebody we've left out. What can you tell me about Smerdyakov? <laughs> Judas. Judas, okay. Partially. But also um, not Judas in the sense that... Uh, Rather than betray his teacher, he's actually carrying out his teacher's orders. Yeah? Hmm. I was just thinking of the part where he killed himself. And I guess oh, he... yes, that's exactly it. And then later on, the prosecuting attorney proves that no one could possibly do that without leaving a note mm-hmm. exonerating a brother. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing that's the case. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's psychologically impossible. And Prosecutors are aware of what's psychologically possible or not. Uh, you know, that's an incredibly damning indictment about our puny rationality. I mean, it makes a good speech, it sounds good, and the problem is it's entirely sophistical, and there's not any truth in it at all. You almost wish it was true. Yeah, right, because the world would be much more predictable. Yeah. One of the funny things, I mean, again, Dostoevsky opens this up to us, but um, psychopathology is actually surprisingly prosaic. In other words, you must have noticed that everybody seems seems sane until you get to know them, right? And you go, oh, well, that's your. <laughs> Everybody's got a couple of those loose ends, and uh, you don't notice people that in people until they you know, start to talk to you and you can find out, well, that's an unusual belief. And nearly everybody has some beliefs that are unusual or idiosyncratic. The ones that don't are actually in the worst shape. Uh, but uh, that's the ones that want to be limited by rationality and haven't thought the problem through. Um, back to Smerdyakov, though. Tell me about him. No legitimate son. Okay, he's a bastard from stinking Lizaveta, the mentally handicapped kind of edge of society. He also has epilepsy. Funny you should mention that, yeah. That is the mark of some kind of congenital problem, right? And the problem is a sickness unto death. It is not so much a a physical problem as a a physical representation of a spiritual problem. His name is Smerdyakov. Remember that the Russians, Russian high culture is saturated in French high culture. That's their standard. The reason it's called Smerdyakov is because of the connection to the French merd, which means shit. <laughs> M-E-R-D-E is the French word for shit. That's why he's Smerdyakov. Mm-hmm. It sounds like shit. Everybody reading it would have understood that. Huh? It wasn't, didn't I could have sworn that the elder K gave him the same. It wouldn't surprise me. Who? It would not. Elder Kermazov. 
Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that struck me about uh, Becca's mother is that she also has like a little bit of the, the same glow that Aloysia has, yeah. um, where she's also sort of cared for by everyone, even if she's not liked in the way he is. Mm -hmm. um, there's that certain um, like respect that they give. Like, like she has that. Uh, like maybe maybe what Andrew's talking about. Like she also walks around randomly, like the idiots, maybe mm -hmm. irrational from the outside. Mm -hmm. But maybe yeah. You know, so the the people are kind to her. They're not always yeah. cool. That's right. <laughs> her husband, of course, right. is a monster. Right. All right. Um, so we get a, a related set of questions here. Father, why should I love you? All right. Who has not wished for the death of his father? I'm getting all Freudian and psychological with the Oedipus complex there. Um, what's the answer? Why should, Father, why should I love you? And who has not wished for the death of his father? These are not just rhetorical questions. You may think they are, but they're not. Yeah? In terms of um, Yasha being, uh, in the beginning I was like, oh, Yasha is Christ. But then I started to realize, well, maybe not. He's just a Christ-like figure. Right. And, I mean, there's plenty of examples, like the how Grushinka is a prostitute, and he's coming to heal her, um, like Christ as She's well. She's trying to tempt him. Right. And instead, he brings her back from sin and despondency. Mm -hmm. And, and like, um, just how all the women love him, the, the youth, um, the elders. But then I started to think, well, it doesn't make sense because of his relationship with Lisa. And then I started to think in another way of Zosima as, like, a Christ-like figure and then Odiasha being his best apostle, like Peter or something. So I couldn't quite figure out. I was toying with all the ideas. Is he Christ? Is he Christ-like figure? Is he a best apostle? Like, I couldn't figure out what the... Maybe Christ is, like, the limit of an asymptote. He is moving in the direction of Christ-likeness, but no one, although we would all like to move in that direction, none of us ever get in there, right? So he's in the process of shedding his sins redeeming himself by taking his love from the monastery to the world. Hmm. Right. Why, is that, why does he have to leave the monastery? Yeah, because he is not suited, or rather, because the world is calling him. Mm -hmm. Father Zosimo can hear the call that he cannot. And he knows that this is a faded, fractured family, which is why he does that very strange thing of bowing down and kissing Dimitri's feet. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, it's a very enigmatic thing to do, and there's been lots and lots written about that. Um, I think it has to do with the fact that he sees that uh, the essence of sin is alive and well inside this family. In other words, the earliest, most primitive sins, the sins of Cain and Abel, Right, the sins of uh, not parasite but ill treatment of one's elders that's what happens with the curse of uh, Noah to Ham right. so this is a cursed family and Zosima is bowing down because I think he's expressing as best he can his utter sympathy with these lost people.
What is it? What's his relationship with Lisa? What What is that? I couldn't really make out why that why that was in there. Um, because no matter how depraved and messed up you are, the skeleton key that unlocks all psychological locks is Alyosha, mm -hmm. right? Because Alyosha is as close as we come to the embodiment of love. Mm -hmm. All right, so he is the spirit of the law. So everybody likes him, no matter how messed up they are. Even totally twisted people like Lisa, or Grushenka, or Katrina Ivanova, um, all of whom were, both of those were supposed to be fallen women. He meets them they're just actually regular people. They really are sinners like any of us, and they don't deserve our condemnation. You can't imagine Ivan responding like that. Right. Yeah. One of the most moving things to me was when uh, Zosimana blesses Ivan. He says, either you are a blessed man or you are an utterly miserable man, having, knowing as you do that without God all is permissible. You're either you are completely happy uh, in, in your love for God or you have rejected God and are miserable until you find the truth. Uh, that's a wonderful way of putting it, exactly right. Father Zosima can see the trials that come with being excessively rational. Uh, Augustine says our hearts are restless until it rests in thee. It's harder to rest inside the theorem of Pythagoras. <laughs> right, although the people Plato tried. also noticeable that towards the end of the book, Alyosha says essentially the same thing to young Kolya. Yes, yes. So he becomes awesome. That's exactly right. Um, hmm. What we're doing here is watching <coughs> the development of these minds. These are all fragmentary people looking for wholeness. Remember the remember Aristophanes' speech in the symposium? It's actually surprisingly similar to that. Each one of these boys is a part of that tripartite soul looking for the other parts. And in order to get to those parts, they have to suffer because that is purifying. That's what happens with Ivan, with this encounter with the devil. Now, it's represented as being a dream, possibly. But it may also have been the devil. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, no, that would be really diabolical, right? To actually show up in somebody's room. And completely mess people up. Because then you're going to go and say, I really talk to the devil, and people are going to think you're crazy, but of course you have. Which is exactly what he wanted. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Yeah. I really thought, I was surprised, I was waiting for the whole time of the evidence of Ivan talking about how Smirjikov talked to him in the, in the trial, but that never he never got the chance to say that. And <laughs> That's right. I, I don't. I didn't understand why. He wanted to give testimony, but but he's crazy. Yeah. So he's run into the room and says, "I'm guilty, not Dmitri. I'm guilty because Smerdyakov told me I was guilty, and I'm guilty because the devil reinforced that with me last night. I, I talked to the devil, and I'd like to turn myself in." Now he gets led out of the courtroom in, right, in, in, a, in, I mean, in a restraint, right, because mm. you're visibly crazy, all right? Of course, he's telling, you know, he's the only guy saying, telling the truth in the whole place. Everybody else is making stuff up, and that they're willing to live with. Right? <laughs> That's so messed up, I'm sorry. I mean, Dostoevsky's really kind of laying it on pretty thick here. 
I mean, I like it. I really enjoy it, but it's kind of a guilty pleasure. You could go a little easier on it, right? Now, Smerdyakov likes talking philosophy with Ivan. But unlike Ivan, he doesn't live his life in his mind. Smerdyakov is capable of action as well, whereas Ivan is not. Very similar to the main character in Crime and Punishment. Yes. Uh, Raskolnikov. Right, the superior name. Yeah. And you know, that's lifted right from nature. I mean, it's, they're not, it's not stolen, but it's not, they're not separate. Um, is it true that if God doesn't exist, everything is permitted? Nietzsche thought so. Yeah, I did. It's true. Sort of Gorgias. Sort of Thrasymachus. Okay. Sort of Machiavelli. Calicles. Calicles, yep. Again, the Gorgias. Good for you. I'm glad to see you've read that. That speaks well for you. Uh, Calicles' last speech is actually the best at um, Creamy Chan. Creamy Chan. Look, if you're ever going to read um, Okay. Is everything permitted if God doesn't exist? Or is there no moral order to the world? The Greeks seem to think so, too. Or maybe Aristotle. So he thinks virtue is a mean between two vices. He doesn't mention God. It's, it's difficult to walk between different extreme positions, but the best I can get at is that we intuit morality before we intuit God, but then we once we intuit God, we recognize that morality depends on him. Mm-hmm. So if we then deny God, we implicitly deny morality, whether or not the new atheists are smart enough to realize it. Okay, so um, if we deny God... Uh, you tell me that we deny ethics. Um, how does that work? Uh, God is the good uh, in Plato, uh, as, Plato was, as Plato taught us. So the but you don't want to go there, do you? I kind of do. Okay. I mean, <laughs> the good isn't a person. We and our first instincts of God are impersonal. It takes a long, a lot of uh, philosophical work to come to eventually recognize that the the impersonal force we first encounter actually as a person. That's interesting. Okay. So, if God doesn't exist, then everything is permitted. Okay, so you're willing to, to affirm that. Uh, any of you guys like the natural world, I would say Hume's account of ethics, who just go, well, look. Um, people mostly don't torture their children because they mostly think it's bad, and they're mostly right. How, what does God have to do with that? I mean, if I hadn't given you Jesus and Christianity and religion, would any of you like torturing children? Okay. Do you notice a pattern there that quite a few people feel that way? Well, so why is it permitted to torture children if you don't have God around? Because God is the ground of all our natures. And so if God, if the ground, if ground is removed, if the, if the, the anchor around which we have all been sailing is removed, then all of a sudden our natures are meaningless and we can refashion them however we so please. Okay. The ground and anchors. Analogies. Yeah. Metaphors. Both problematic. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. Well, I'm just borrowing from Nietzsche, so. No, well, okay, well, that's even. That, that, that fits you in strange. <laughs> I must say, but I'm impressed. It's kind of quite versatile. Yeah. <laughs> 
instead of from a, purely from a different perspective sake, no. instead of God being the ground of our nature and the ground of our morality mm-hmm. I would say that the reason torturing children is impermissible is because God is the final judge and once we remove that final judgment everything would become permissible because it doesn't matter anymore okay. so um, before say the advent of Christianity um, torturing children was permissible it was permissible but if you argue from there's like this abstract concept we find of natural law that runs through everything which is more what I would subscribe to in this case if we are arguing from an atheistic point of view for morality okay that's plausible um, I'm not sure it's atheistic though natural law is always covert theology mm-hmm. you can't have it without God right but if we're denying God okay if you're denying it then you're also going to deny natural law then it's just going to be atoms in the void mm-hmm. That's right. So, so what about a more bi- a biological approach to this? Like that torturing mm-hmm. children is bad because it hurts the reproduction of the species. And okay. so there's, and I, 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 I want to say that like people, not Singer, but um, other like Harris would say, argue. Mm-hmm. Right. So the problem with that is that slavery is very beneficial for the continuance of the species. Right. But but I'm just saying that like that there, it's, it's not a perfect form of morality, but it it is a it's a if you do deny God, you can still recognize that there's some rules that you should follow because... It's the kind of thing the Romans or the Mongols would have understood. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of examples. Don't. Um, i get you in a second. Okay. Right? Um, the problem isn't so much that there are awful things like slavery that might be beneficial to the reproduction of our species, but uh, the other question is the fact that biologically we uh, strive to, or at least for most people do, strive to... Uh, keep their offspring alive. Um, how does the fact that people do that prove that people ought to do that? You know, as you're deriving an ought from an is. And there's no set of things that people do that's evolution and that's advantageous or disadvantageous in an evolutionary sense that you could possibly get any ought from. This is somewhere where my thinking has gone and this I think is actually a powerful argument against uh, I guess some degree of immoralism. <clears throat> Right, because the the fundamental problem, even biologically, with say Nazism, is that there aren't any Nazis anymore. They, you know, they they did it. They did a damn good run at taking over the world and becoming the the system, but clearly they could not because it was too great a threat to other systems. So even biologically, things like murder can't persist. So if your goal, in, in like a Machiavellian sense, is power, persistence, sticking around to the next generation, mm-hmm. then having a, a set of a moral laws or a moral code is advantageous. and You just can't deny that historically. That's a good point for Machiavelli. But the problem is, is that it, you can't deny uh, the advantage of a moral code except when it is useful, in which case you can. So the, the, the Machiavellian, just as the, the Nietzschean or the Calicles or the Thessalonians. He's an anti-Kantian. Kant says you mustn't murder people because would you want to be murdered? And Machiavelli says, no, I don't want to be murdered. No, I'm certainly going to murder people more effectively then. <laughs> because all the more effectively because I don't want to be murdered. I'm dealing with a bunch of murderous, treacherous people. And nice guys finish last. And so, uh, although I can't universalize the maxim, I very much do intend to murder people. As, uh, as oh dear me, the second main character in the Republic starts with a G. Glauco. 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 Glauco
Falcon says the uh, the ideal evil man appears to be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. All right. So the question of whether God's non-existence means everything is permitted, some people draw that inference. Others would say, well, you might derive your ethics from nature. I think that, for example, that's what Aristotle believes he's doing. He's looking at human nature, he's looking at human life and human society, and then he's saying these things are advantageous for the flourishing of human beings. And I think what he's doing is talking about this in the same way that you might talk about the kind of soil and sunlight and rain that's advantageous for roses, because he's a biologist. And it's a biological fact that um, roses are hard to grow on the South Pole because it's too cold, but there are other environments which are better for them. And so in that sense, if, you, if what you mean by ethics is flourishing within the natural world, which is not a far-fetched account of what, of what a naturalistic ethics would sound like, well then, there are some kinds of soil and some kinds of fertilizer that are good for roses and some that aren't. Similar thing would be true of people. If you're one of those monsters that, you know, throws a kid in the closet and doesn't raise him and, you know, comes out at 10 and he's, you know, essentially not a human being in the sense of the development of consciousness, um, well, that's one way in which human beings might develop, but it's not the most advantageous. In fact, it's, in other words, Aristotle would say, look, it's an objective fact that some conditions are good for roses and some for bad. And it's an objective fact that some conditions are good for human flourishing and some aren't. You lock the kid in the closet, that's not good for him. Or for you. Right. And so there's no argument to make here. He thinks it's a matter of fact. Now, he's, he's, he's ignoring the is-ought distinction. He's saying, no, you me wrong. Um, if, you, if what you mean by ought is the things that make the, th- the X flourish, well, there are some conditions that do, that do that and some don't. Fish, on the whole, if you want to continue having them be fish-like, should be in the water. Hmm. Being on land is not good for them, it turns out. And this is not controversial. It's not just, well, that's your subjective opinion. No, I mean, fish are very unhappy on deck. And they really want to be in the water because that's where they belong. And that's where they flourish best. And there really isn't all that much argument to have about it. In other words, that's not a pure opinion. That's not purely subjective. Okay, if it should work for fish and roses, why doesn't it work for people? In other words, I'm calling into question this business of does it depend on God? There are cultures that don't have monotheism, and yet they seem to develop uh, ideas about right and wrong and about good and evil, um, which restrict their conduct. Incest, for example, is prohibited pretty much everywhere and doesn't have anything to do with Yahweh or the Bible. Okay, so is it true that without God all things are permitted? It's more controversial than it, than you, than it immediately suggests. Alright. If we need not just God but the right God, the real God, um, that means that the vast majority of our species um, have no ethics, and I think it has an empirical fact. It would have been impossible to put together the Roman Empire or the Muslim, you know, juggernaut 
unless they had some idea of ethics, because as Plato points out, if they're unjust amongst themselves, then they're not going to get anything done. Right. So it may be a defective understanding of right and wrong. It may be an, an incomplete understanding of right and wrong. Yet I'm not completely sure that Dostoevsky is right here. He might be. What do you think? I mean, haven't societies, even like predating Christianity, they've always had gods. So. Mm -hmm. In a sense, they would always be basing it, well, if I do this wrong action, the, the, this God's going to condemn me if I do this. That doesn't work, though, because of Confucius and Buddha. Hmm. Why so? Confucius is agnostic about God at best. Uh, the Buddha is straight-up atheistic. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're some of the most moral individuals who have ever lived. Okay. Which is deeply disconcerting. So, so, how, yeah, so how, how could you answer that they know to do the good Versus the, the way that I would articulate it is that it takes an enormous amount of effort and an enormous amount of time. We've all read the Quran. It's incredibly hard to come to the conception of the immaterial, invisible God who is the source of morality. Mm -hmm. Before you come to that conception, we have an idea of morality. Not just an idea, but a very strong idea present in many cultures. Eventually, if you follow that all the way out, you come to the ineffable God. If you then deny the ineffable God, it's like all the things that were built on it just all of a sudden crumble. But if you don't have the full conception of God and you deny him, then you don't see the, the effects. Hmm. This is what's wrong with the new atheists. They don't understand what they're denying. Nietzsche understood what he was denying, and that's why he's Nietzsche. That's a good point. I don't know if you're familiar with the kind of new atheists, but they're a I, they're, they get on my nerves too. I share frustration with this. Um, they're kind of middle-browed, chest-thumping, science-worshipping guys. <laughs> and uh, they're not stupid, but um, they just... Uh, they like simplicity more than is good for them, right? They, no, I mean, these are guys that very much value intellectual tidiness. And the idea of loose strings just really sets them off. There are some people like that that can't. No, you ever see someone that has to have a perfectly clean house or a perfectly clean dorm room? Less usual, admittedly, but <laughs> it does, in fact, happen. Okay, well, there are certain people who, view, who feel that way about their thinking rather than their room. Right? They like tidiness. They don't want any loose ends. And that's the main attraction of these kind of reductive systems. Right? It's clean, doesn't leave anything left over. It's all matter all the way down. Um, I sympathize with their desire for simplicity and clarity. Um, I'm not sure they're going the right direction here, but these are not frivolous ideas. Right. Yeah? Uh, well, I don't know if you want to. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I, would, I would sort of contest your idea that Natural law always results in a belief in a god. No, no, I, was, I don't think is that it's a belief in God that generates natural law. But I think it's possible to come to an understanding, even if you don't call it natural law. I think it's possible to come to an understanding of something like natural law without a belief in God. It may be the case. I think that Aristotle's idea of the flourishing of roses would be something like that. Mm -hmm. That that seems to me like just another appeal to, to power or to biology, right? Because what's the problem if you don't give roses enough water, they 
die and they don't stick around, so right. you don't have any roses that flourish without water. Right, uh, just as more is, is, is. That's true. So you might, might be able to make that objection to Aristotle himself. The later Aristotelian tradition recognizes that all natures come from God, and as such, they have a moral imperative built into them. Right. Um, that you act in accordance with the nature that has been given you. This is what we're talking about in uh, Coleman's class. Sure. So whether or not Aristotle, there's a strong argument to be made that Aristotle already grasped this because uh, for him, God is the, the goal of everything. So all human goals would be subsumed to God as final goal. Regardless, the Aristotelian tradition is a little stronger on this than the Hume is on distinction. Well, right, but um, there, there's two problems there. One is that when you acknowledge that with the later Aristotelians, that they realize it's God or nothing, or rather, it may be better to say that it's God or biology at work, which is just what persists, what sticks around. Um, she was saying, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, we, you, what biology is just more is. Well, right, right. And um, the other thing is biology actually doesn't point you in, in any way towards uh, goal-based behavior in the true sense. So that's, you and I may disagree about this. You're entitled <laughs> But the biology is unintelligible without goal-based behavior. What is a stomach? The stomach is... Uh, where food becomes digested, and stomachs the, which don't digest food don't have reproducing macroorganisms, and so the, they've ceased to before be. Before you even get that, the definition, in order to distinguish the stomach from the rest of the body, you have to distinguish what the stomach is for. The stomach is for... That, there's a very tricky verbal thing going on there, but determining between a thing's purpose and what function it is carrying out is not present in biology. Form, form equals function. So, right? but, 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 a, but function is always goal-based. A function is for the sake of something. Why, why is that the case? Try so, to explain any aspect of the human body to you without implicitly telling okay, you what thing is That's for. linguistic. It, it's, it's, it's not that tells you about it. No, it's it. not linguistic. Because you, you, it, it's, it's not a matter of language, but it's a matter of the understanding of reality. Uh, let's talk about yeast. Uh, just because this is fresh in my mind, we were doing this last year. Um, yeast, there's, there's a particular, I guess it's a, a protein that's toxic to yeast. Um, when, you've, when you've got, when it imports a certain chemical, when you introduce the, um, this protein, the yeast dies, okay? And then the only yeast that are left uh, are the ones that don't import that protein. Where did that protein become for killing yeast. It just seems that it, it kills yeast and then it doesn't kill other yeast. So the, the, the short answer is take metaphysics. The long answer, the, the, the medium answer that I can give right now is that the protein does not intend the death of the yeast. The yeast does not intend to die by result of the protein. But there is a sense in which the properties of the molecule are ordered to killing yeast insofar as when these molecules and yeast interact, always or for the most part, the death of the yeast ensues. But that's not intentional. It's not intended. It's simply the recognition of uh, repeatable instances 
of a form leading to a function. Right. That's why I think that biology cannot take you to purpose. You have so to. You have to take it. Biology in the mo biology in the modern sense cannot take you to moral purpose, but a complete study of the human being cannot ignore that we are directed towards practical action. Okay, but consider you have two populations of human being. Mm -hmm. One that would would be directed towards practical action, like harvesting food, and one that's not interested in food. The only thing that biology Show me tells a human you being is not interested in food. Well, exactly. The thing is, the only thing biology tells you is that. Were there such human beings? They they died. They aren't around anymore. So That's the, all yes, that tells but the, the conception of biology that you're using is foreign to the Aristotelian tradition. Well, well right, because the, the, the anthropology is what we're, we need to look at, not merely biology. Can I interject something? Please. Um, I think there's a distinction between something being ordered to something and being ordered in a way that it results in a certain end. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you said the bacteria or the protein is ordered to cause the death of. Right, maybe that's and not the best, ordered in such a way that. I think we could look at human nature the same way, that we can look and see human nature is ordered in a way that it is conducive to our goodness and the goodness of our society to take care of our children and practice justice and things like that. So even if there is no, like, God imposing a moral absolute, there is still something that we can look at and say we are ordered in a way that makes this good. Correct, but the, the, the problem is the problem of the, the perfect evil man in the Republic mm -hmm. who recognizes that, says it's very beneficial for the hoi polloi to have morality. As Voltaire says, I'm very glad that my tailor believes in God. The opiate of the masses. Exactly, opiate of the masses, great that everyone's high, now I'm gonna go murder a couple of people on my rise to power. Mm -hmm. This is where God uh, becomes a necessary postulate. I, I don't understand how it's a problem to the theory, though. I understand how it's a problem to the practice. Right. Yeah. So it, it doesn't change anything that you just said. You're correct. Everything that you said is correct. But the, the point is that intelligent people like Ivan or Smirchikov can take advantage of that to do whatever they Sure, want. but intelligent people can take advantage of uh, God and morality when we believe that that exists, too. Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. If, if but they will burn hell as a result. Okay, but the question we're asking is if morality exists without God, not whether people are going to burn in hell. Fair. <laughs> this is great. I mean, you really made, no, you made such tremendous strides. Think of where you were 18 months ago. You couldn't do this. I mean, it's actually nice to watch. Um, no, I mean, you're actually I mean, real intermediates now. I mean, you, you have something to connect things to, and it's nice to see. I mean, it never gets old, actually. I seem to be able to do this. Now, I had a couple of questions. I had so many questions in the course of this. You know, <laughs> I was bouncing off my, the inside of my head. But problem I have, the question I have for you is, I can see how it works for the softball examples. What do you want to do with the hard ones, like the earlobe? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's entirely fair. What does that do? Um, the, so it, the, the Aristotelian claim is that any object, any existing finite object, has some minimum le level of teleological function insofar as, in certain situations, it will always, or for the most part, do what it's done in the past. Okay. That's the, the, the bare minimum level of teleology. Some things have a higher level of teleological function, and some Composites that have many layers of higher level teleological function also have leftover bits 
that don't have that higher level function, so the earlobe doesn't have uh, a purpose that is contributive to the whole in the same way that stomach does. Okay. A purpose that's contributive to the whole, how is that different from a purpose? Um, the, there is the, there's a purpose, so that we have, we have, we're dealing with analogy here, but the, the purpose of uh, my fingernail in of itself is just to be hard and to continue being hard, mm -hmm. uh, to continue repelling things when it's bounced up against things. Mm -hmm. um, as a part of a whole, it's helpful in that I can scratch things and pick things up. But so there's that, the, the Aristotelian claim is not that every object is part of a whole, mm -hmm. but that in itself it has uh, properties that repeat in successive circumstances. It's very similar to what Newton is trying to describe with his laws. Okay, so my earlobe uh, acts in such a way as to be at the bottom of my ear rather than, say, turning into an elk. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> Um, That's am I understanding that, you, you, that its function is not to turn into an elk? More or less, yes. Okay. You've got me completely baffled. I have no idea. <laughs> in other words, Fair enough. I mean, it's doing a, an excellent job of not turning into an elk. <laughs> I mean, I've never actually been worried that it might. Uh, if that is sufficient to attribute a telos to something, then your standards are actually, I mean, Pretty low. Pretty low, yeah. No, they, they are. They, yeah. They, when, once you start attributing to, uh, purposes to electrons, then your standards are pretty low. Okay. Why should we have any standard at all, since it doesn't seem to uh, add anything to our understanding of earlobes? Because we can't understand efficient causality without uh, a reference to final causality. Why do we need to understand efficient causality? Uh, the, well, the, the basic claim is that the world is intelligent. Earlobes are perfectly intelligible even if they don't have a function. They're intelligible if they don't have a function as a part of the human whole, but they aren't intelligible if they don't repeatedly engage in the same activity over time. Yes, it would be very odd if they should occasionally turn into elk, mm -hmm. but since I haven't been burdened with any such occurrence, the is something I would worry about. Right, so the, the, the background of this is the reputation of human. Well, it's the denial of human. It's not quite the same thing as a refutation. I think, there is, need, I think there is a refutation. You might well be right. I, I don't deny that. Mm -hmm. um, it's not clear to me how attributing teloi to things that... Well, I don't know. I'm not saying that telos refutes Hume. I'm saying that in the process of refuting Hume, we come to the conclusion of telos. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm happy with telos when I can get it. In other words, I don't want to open the door with my eye, because that would be most damaging to my eye, and I don't want to look around with my hand, because my hand can't see. Um, I'm happy with the easy ones, it's the hard examples that I don't know what to do with. I understand. All right. uh, I, I spent the last two years trying to figure it out, and I've gotten close. Good for you. No, I mean, there's a doctoral dissertation there if you got something. Um, it's an interesting set of problems, um, particularly because, remember that biology has been fundamentally changed in the 19th century by Darwin, right? What that means is, is that, for example, the nature of a horse is no longer a clear and distinct thing. I mean, back in the day, we could just ask Plato what the ideal horse looked like, and he would tell you. But now we have Eohippus and Mesohippus and all those things turning into the big hippus. Yeah. And uh, at any point, well, they're all horses in a way. 
but early on, they're the size of rabbits. Right. Yeah, so the late scholastics got themselves into a lot of trouble by trying to attribute, by trying to attribute a clear, distinct purpose to every function of uh, of any bi bi of anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, Descartes is the most famous example. Mm -hmm. uh, you seem as late scholastic. There's some truth in that. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's the, the last breath and the final denial of scholasticism. I would have gone with Occam, but we're going to have to talk about that sometime. Yeah. Here, here's the deal. Let me come away from this. I don't want to drift off into this because it's too damned easy. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. No, no you're, you're an admirable digression, but a digression nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, God does not exist, everything is permitted. It's a question of whether ethics can be naturalistic or not. All right. Does ethics require metaphysics? Well, the one world guys like Hume say no. What you see is what you get. The two world guys like Kant said no, no, no. You can't get it all from it is. And you have to get it from Kantian philosophy, from the categorical imperative. The Epicureans believe that you can get a naturalistic ethics. So do all the scientific reductionists, like today's uh, uh, new atheists. Or Dakota, if you remember. What? Dakota. Dakota, or consistent naturalism, yeah. Really, I mean, here's a handy guy to have around. You need a consistent naturalistic class so I can call on him when I need somebody to get all scientific for me. <laughs> but, you know. What about utilitarianism? <clears throat> what about it? Like, like how, does that fit into a sort of natural, well, or is that they, more of an economic? Analysis? No, no, no. Um, Mill d works really hard in utilitarianism. <laughs> the, the dumbest argument of the 19th century, <laughs> right? <laughs> Utility all right, is desirable because it is desired. <laughs> now, what he's trying, what he's doing is the old shell game, and he doesn't even notice it. He doesn't know that he's lying, right? Um, to so call something visible means you can see it. To call something audible means you can hear it. But to call something desirable does not mean that you can desire it, because you can desire murder and rape and all kinds of evil things. So what he's doing is taking things like vis visible and audible, making an implicit analogy to, between that and desirable, and saying you can prove that pleasure is desirable by the fact that people desire it. They wouldn't be able to desire it if it weren't desirable. Well, yes, <laughs> but that just means that everything that people desire is desirable, and that means that all the inhabitants of all the prisons in the world have been engaging in desirable conduct. <laughs> There's a problem there. So you may ask, what about utilitarianism? Well, the problem is, although you may pursue pleasure, and many people do pursue pleasure, some people pursue other stuff. The question is, um, can the fact that many people pursue pleasure give you justification for making the claim that people ought to pursue pleasure? Which I don't think follows. I think Hume has the better of that. That's why Mill goes out of his way to give us the crappiest argument of the 19th century. <laughs> One of the things is I, I, I try and pick out the worst argument in every century. <laughs> <laughs> right, like Descartes' hypothalamus, <laughs> where the, the spirit world comes into the meat and starts moving around. <laughs> but that's genuinely preposterous. <laughs> and so, you know, here's something to be, you know, there's lots to be learned from bad arguments. Right? And uh, this is a problem 
here because it's not clear who has the better of this. There are people all over the world, actually throughout the history of our species, think 100,000 years ago, that probably had some sense of uh, things you should do and things you shouldn't. They had some sense of taboos. Well, do they have a God? And if the God, and if they have a God, does it have anything to do with Yahweh, or is it anything like Yahweh? Or what are we supposed to think about that? I don't know. It seems to me the ubiquity of something like the incest taboo suggests that there's some things that people tend to gravitate towards. Now, it may turn out, for biological reasons, that that exogamy is actually useful to small groups, right? The endogamy means they're inbred and they die off because of inheritable diseases. So maybe it's just a selection process. You that, 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 that in some ways is something that's so poisonous and so difficult if you want to preserve an idea of God about biology, which is that anything that's stuck around, you can usually look back historically, and it is something attractive and say, well, why did this stick around? Okay, now do we need another reason that it's here? Okay, that's interesting. One of the questions that I would raise, and it's an interesting question, because there's lots of ways you take it, but uh, what is it that caused the rise of the great world religion? In other words, they all rise in the old world uh, between, say, China and the Med, uh, China, India, Mesopotamia, Persia, and the Med. Um, they all emerge between, say, 1008 BC and, and the time of Christ. The question that I, I would, you know, want to examine: um, Why did they emerge? In other words, they, I assume that it means they're doing something similar in each of these cultures. Is religion necessary? If so, what is it necessary for? If it's not necessary, isn't it odd that all these cultures seem to be sprouting one? The problem is that there's there's a how answer and a why answer. I'm, I'll take both. Uh, well, I'm, I'm greedy. I <laughs> admirable. Um, the, uh, the how answer seems plausible enough, right? Which is to say, okay, how did, how did these come about? Well, maybe there was an advantage to it, right? A society in which people have some purpose, have loyalty, and have ideas in their head that get them to act a particular way and outcompete or absorb other societies, well, they would still be here. It, it makes sense that they've gotten to where they are um, when you get enough people in the right sort of place. It's almost like, like nuclear arms. It's like you reach a conventional arms point where you just can't build any more conventional bombs, and now if you want to stick around and you want to stay on top, you've got to keep pushing forward that you, you could have an ideological arms race. That's a how. But it, I mean, if you're asking a why... I'll take, oh yeah, I'll take either, yeah. I, I don't know that I would say I have any, any expertise to give you a why, except to speculate theologically. Yeah. Um, well, it's a little bit like this. Um, it turns out that for complicated, multi-celled animals, respiration is really important. And different animals... Um, evolve different responses to this necessity. Some of them develop lungs and on the basis of where they spend their lives. Others develop gills because they spend their lives somewhere else. But it seems to me that what they're both doing is looking for a way to transfer energy from the external environment to the internal environment. Right? We're bringing in oxygen in both cases. One's out of the air and the other out of the water. Okay. Um, my guess would be that the evolution of these things is both responding, they're both responding to a necessity, 
but necessities under different circumstances. But there's a certain kind of convergence here in the sense that you need that energy one way or another if you're going to have large multicellular animals. Sure. Okay? So both gills and lungs seem like they're a response to the same problem under different circumstances. Um, I don't know, I mean, it seems like that's moving us in the direction of teleology, all right? On the other hand, uh, there might be other ways to respond to this, to this issue. In other words, maybe there's a special kind of respiration that they do on top of Mount Everest if there are microbes or something there, that, or you know, multicellular animals that do it in a different way. So there seems to be some movement towards the solution of certain kinds of problems. How far along that line are we going to have to go before we start to discern teleology there? That's where it gets a little fuzzy for me. I don't think that historically, biologically, scientifically, you can ever bridge to, to teleology. You just, you know, I'm afraid you, but, might, you have to kind of pull the, the Bible straight out of the mouth of God to get. I think you're right. The current state of our sciences is, particularly biological sciences, is that they've given up on teleology, right? And, uh, well, no, I mean, the actual practice of the discipline, right? they've given up on it. Um, they take you, when you go to medical school, they'll tell you the different parts of the body and what, if you want a living body, it has to be doing. But that's going to say, look, that's not intrinsic to the thing. That's just the way this happens to work. It's a, it's a, a set of accidents, a concatenation of, okay. Um, the same sort of thing with uh, all the other domains of natural science, but also particularly the other domains of, of biology. Evolutionary biology is the study, say, I don't know, um, fish coming out of the water and going onto land. None of them ever ask, I wonder what the fish were thinking about when they decided to start wiggling on land. Um, it doesn't matter because the intentions of the fishes are irrelevant. It's not like fishes are doing their best to become land animals because somehow they need to be land animals, right? There's, I don't think there's any biologists or very few biologists that would make a claim like Right. Majority has said, look, it's the random result of genetic mutations, and uh, there's no teleology in nature at all. Right? And so that's the current state of the art. So I think your point is well taken. Right? In other words, it may be that natural science someday will not hold that view, but currently that's the overwhelmingly dominant view. If you want to see a response to that, there's a great book by a modern philosopher called Aristotle's Revenge. Very important book for me, uh, in that it convinced me that there is a human condition can survive in the modern world with the modern critique. I mean, it would be very interesting. Um, what characterizes modern natural science, and here I'm talking about the kind of sci the science that emerged between the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Um, what that did was give up on theology, right? For a variety of reasons. That's true. That's true. Right? So, because they gave up on teleology, that's never been successfully reintroduced. That's what people like the, uh, what the Discovery Institute out in Seattle are trying to do. They're trying to go for, they're trying to argue for uh, uh, intelligent design, that there's evidence in nature. That's for, the, that is, I dislike that. It's completely hopeless. It's a, it's, a, it's a dead end, right? In other words, look, use your intellectual ability and your energy for something that's actually going to work. This mm -hmm. is not going to work, 
right? Because what it means is that what they're trying to do is go back to Aristotelian physics, or at least the Aristotelian teleology. But the thing is that the modern Aristotelians don't like those guys either. I don't blame them. I understand that. I mean, they're more subtle. Yeah. Um, but the point is something like this. Uh, modern evolutionary theory is jettisoned the idea of telos. Yes. Well, if it's you read Bella, he points out that, that there is that there's a resurgence of teleology in evolutionary biology. It wouldn't surprise for, me. For good reason. Yeah. In other words, look, there are certain things like the beating of the heart, where you know, I don't have any problem with theology. It looks to me like if you want to be alive, you have to have your heart beat because it moves blood around. On the other hand, I don't know what you need to do with your ear. Look. <laughs> I don't. I can't even see a reason to believe that that has an impact. It's entirely compatible with an Aristotelian view of teleology to say that the earlobe is the result of chance. Okay. I can show yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I know. know I understand that. Um, now we're going to be in the domain of separating out the necessary from the accidental. And the, Good and, luck. And the Aristotelian would say we'll never be completely certain, but there will be some where it's more strong or less strong that we can have a pretty clear judgment. That's a plausible argument, actually. You know, I mean, there'll be a, a, a gray area, which would be difficult. But yeah, I mean, that makes pretty good sense. It's, it's a kind of thesis. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, um, I'm not as, as uh, committed to rescuing Aristotle as you are, but I see that, you know, the advantages trying to do that, that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, my difficulty with um, the... Aristotelian tradition of physics is that it's been largely kicked out of science by the pros. The problem, my problem with that is that that is the result of, not of scientific development, but of philosophical speculation in the Enlightenment. And that philosophical speculation uh, asks the wrong questions. That's interesting. Okay. Well, um, we'll come back to because we're going to be visiting teleology quite a bit, I'm afraid. We're also going to be visiting science quite a bit. And, of course, uh, the modern impasse of ethics. Is ethics even possible? With a, with a god or without? Or is it just a question of random, spontaneous emotions? That's one conception of human nature and also one conception of human freedom. That's freedom as liberty. The more rational conception is freedom as autonomy, which is not nearly as popular because it doesn't allow you to gratify your desires as much. We're in a pretty bad way in this culture. Um, Dostoevsky wanted to know, Father, why should I love you? What's the answer? Do you, would you love the Elder Karamazov? At the end, he addresses that it's not a matter of birth that you should only love him because it's your legitimate father, but there has to be, in order, he talks about in order to be a good father, you have to be followed, you have to follow, carry out your duty, and that there's much more to being a father than just natural birth. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but, yeah. So why should I love my father, or why should I love the other Karmazov? Because it's a duty. It's and, a duty. And okay. because, as Asana says, we're all responsible for everyone. Yes, yes. That is Christian agape. That is the spirit of the law. That's a, an essential Christian doctrine. I'm not sure that it counts as a reason. 
Who has not wished for the death of his father? Any of you? Yes. Everybody has. No, I mean, um, look, when you're growing up, your parents are a pain in the ass, right? Because they restrict you. Because you have teenage hormones running through you, and you need to be restricted. And so the best thing that can happen to you is that your parents restrict you, right? But most teenagers do not enjoy this, which is why they are so difficult to raise. Thank your parents someday for having gotten you through those years. Okay, so Father, um, why should I love you? And then even more important, who has not wished for the death of his father? That's not a rhetorical question. There's an answer. No. No. Christ. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. He has not wished for the death of his father. So the answer to the big question is, yes, you guessed it. Because you know. <laughs> there we go. So. <sighs> Before we go, what do you think of the Grand Inquisitor? No, I was going to I was going to finish up with that. Grand Inquisitor is one of the most beautiful things ever written. Also one of the most disturbing things. Often in lame humanities classes, they just cut that out of the book and say you can't read the whole book. We're just going to give you this. Which gives you interesting stuff to talk about. It's just that it's not Dostoevsky's novel. Um, the Grand Inquisitor is a creature of this world. He is in league with sin and human frailty. He is dispensing a false kind of charity the charity of strictly enforced laws without religious authorization. Yeah? He's a Machiavelli. That's right. He is actually Ivan. That's why Ivan says it's really good for people to believe in God because it keeps them quiet and they don't bother me. And given the choice, Ivan would turn into the Grand Inquisitor. But even in Ivan's story, we come to the limits of language. And when we reach the limits of what can be said, we then move into the domain of the things that can only be shown. Not said. And Jesus kisses the Grand Inquisitor when he threatens him with death and destruction. And this so shakes the Grand Inquisitor that he lets him go and tells him to get out of here, don't ever come back. But then Alyosha kisses Ivan. And the problem is, there's no counter-argument to a kiss. It's like saying there's no, there's no response to laughter. <laughs> um, there are words and there are things. And a kiss is a thing, not a word. So Ivan gives us all these cool, interesting ideas that are skeptical of religion. 
and Alyosha crushes these arguments by not making an argument. I give you the kiss of peace. It's the inverse of the Judas kiss that Jesus gets. <laughs> One way of thinking of Alyosha is that he's the anti-Judas. His brother is betraying himself. And he decides to unbetray him with a kiss. And strangely enough, Ivan is absolutely joyous at the response. He's happy and smiles at him and says, you know, that's not fair. You can't do that. That's not an argument. But he loves Alyosha because everybody loves Alyosha. <laughs> and Alyosha does nothing but benevolent, kind things for people. And so he says, uh, that's not an argument. I'll let it slide this time. Jesus and Alyosha win the day. And although Jesus has been banished, Alyosha is here. Strange that when you get rid of him, he's like, you boomerangs on back. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is what you do with Nietzscheans. You just kill them with kindness. God's mm. crazy. <laughs> it does. Mm. I mean, they'll laugh at you for a while, but eventually they get tired of scoffing. And I don't know what to do. Mm. Mm. Nietzsche asked, why truth? And the answer is because of love. Well, that's a beautiful, dubious answer. Yes, <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> Or because of this. Yeah. Um, why truth? Because of love. This goes back to what I was saying earlier, that the problem of the human condition, both as individuals and as a collective, is that there's an imperfect Venn diagram, an imperfect overlap between love and reason. This is the problem of our species. Think about the Odyssey when Odysseus does the flashback to the Iliad. Turns out that Asimus, Hector's child is still alive and he's like three or four and Odysseus sees what's going on and says um, he's going to grow up and he's going to turn into something like his dad and he's going to come back for payback and he's going to kill every one of us so the boy has to die. And then he takes, and they all agree and they take him up to the roof uh, or to the walls of Iliad uh, of Troy and throw him down and kill him. What they're doing is reasoning their way into murdering a child. This is pertinent to our question that Augustine was thought enough, thoughtful enough to propose for us. Is reason enough? I think it is not. Because there are some monstrous things that are perfectly reasonable. This is not unusual. Any of you have seen Godfather 2? What happens? They've killed the parents, they're going to kill the child. 
And the logic is flawless. There's no problem in reasoning there. The problem is that it's an abomination. So we were hoping to be protected from abominations, and apparently reason will not do that. Which means we need something else. Which is why love is trouble. But there's a danger here. Love demands rational deployment. You may have lots of love for people, but if you just throw money, say, if you throw $100 bills around rather than give them to people that are in need of them. Right. That's exactly right. So this is a novel that bristles with problems and questions and interesting things to do with your brain. All right. It may be the product of some kind of organic mental illness, but I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, and for my purpose, it doesn't matter. I don't care. It is one of the great landmarks of the 19th century. Next class. Who's who's going to present next class? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Admirable. Okay. Now here's the deal. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I left them too long. Please, please don't go. Go ahead. I, I really didn't know we were gone. Please go ahead. Nietzsche.